This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. Today we're joined by the mighty Quinn, Jack Quinn, former chief of staff to Vice President Al Gore, former White House counsel in the Clinton administration, and the chairman and founder of the bipartisan Washington, D.C. powerhouse, QGA Public Affairs. Plus, we'll speak to Nancy Cordes, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Quinn and Cordes on the week that was in Washington, D.C. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. Uh, sorry, I was just taking a call the other uh, few minutes ago. The Huntsman campaign is after a new advance director and they're coming after me it's it's a it's a sad joke to hear you make because the huntsman <laughs> campaign does seem to be imploding but it was the week in washington that's got my attention josh that yeah adam you're right it started uh, of course with the um that moment that incredible moment when we were watching on c-span the voting of congress uh, for the debt ceiling bill that then became the debt ceiling law this beginning of applause from a corner of the chamber and you realize that it was the congresswoman from arizona uh, gabby giffords coming to cast her vote that's right Right, we started this year here at POTUS, uh, Sirius XM 124, with this horrific image coming out of uh, Arizona with the senseless shooting of Gabby Giffords at a meeting with her constituents in a parking lot of all places. And to have her back on this uh, most important day was really the highlight emotionally, Josh, but uh, it all seemed to wind down emotionally as the week went on. The bill was signed in private and so much uh, that was made of these things being put out for all to read before a vote was taken, that also seemed to slide sideways to make way for the August 2nd deadline. Yeah, think about the polyoptics on this. Uh, Gabby Giffords makes that incredible entrance uh, into the House chamber. It happens a little after uh, the evening news goes on the air, so those images really don't get on the air until uh, prime time on cable networks. And then that next day, when you think that there should be some image of bipartisanship, it's President Barack Obama and 25 signing pens, just him and those pens alone in the Oval Office. It's remarkable how leading up to this vote, uh, even though we had seen Vice President Biden tasked with trying to cobble together a bipartisan deal, didn't make it happen, finally surfacing and coming back with some very tough and and very angry language characterizing Republican caucus as being terrorists and taking hostages. Uh, The only light of bipartisanship, as you uh, point out, seemingly uh, Gabby Gifford's entrance in it was uh, fast removed as uh, everybody took to their leave and the Senate was left to try and hammer out a deal on FAA bill. And, and then as if, as if we were living in a dream, you know, uh, we, we had all been so transfixed about this battle for several weeks and we forget that it's not just in the United States that the debt crisis is looming uh, all across the world and certainly in Spain and Italy. Uh, we woke up on Thursday morning and re- are reminded uh, across in Europe with uh, issues in Italy uh, and the debt crisis, markets plunge across the world, a 500-point loss in the Dow. If you're a photo editor at the New York Times and indeed in newspapers around the world, you send your your shooters out to the 
out to the floors of the stock market and you say, get me pictures of brokers with their hands uh, covering their heads, this moment of disaster, waking up to this nightmare on Friday morning. And ultimately, to bring it back to Washington, uh, the impact on the economy and jobs numbers at the end of the week, uh, which showed a, a slight pullback uh, by perhaps a tenth of a percent, but uh, certainly no good news uh, in Washington or for the Obama administration and new jobs created. What what happened this week, Josh, and how it's played out on the Hill and the negotiations and the communications can best be appreciated by folks who have been through this, who've counseled presidents, who have served as chief of staffs, who've, uh, you know, really honed the art of bipartisanship in Washington. And our lead guest is somebody who typifies that. Uh, Jack Quinn is someone you worked with when he was uh, counselor uh, to President Bill Clinton, formerly uh, chief of staff to Vice President Al Gore, and today the head of, of probably the biggest and most important bipartisan firm in Washington, of which I am a proud member. Uh, Jack Quinn, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me. Josh, you, you recall what kind of a leader uh, Jack Quinn is, uh, you know, in your time working uh, near him at the White House, and we have an appreciation perhaps that uh, folks who are listening may not of how important a role White House counsel can be. Uh, they are a touchstone for just about every quarter of the White House, including uh, the President of the United States, but their leadership transcends. Uh, Jack, I guess the first question I have for you is, were you disheartened over this last week to see how things played out? I, I, I think you probably had a good sense of that we would make this deadline, but it, it didn't play out in a very happy or upbeat way for the American people from my perspective. No, it certainly didn't play out in a happy or upbeat way. Um, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before. You talk about bipartisanship, it's for all intents and purposes um, all but dead. Um, to me, the interesting thing is that um, the people who were searching for the so-called middle in American politics discovered that it doesn't really exist on Capitol Hill. Um, you really do have uh, uh, the, the two polar opposites in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, and in retrospect, there really was no center to find. The uh, Tea Party Caucus in the Republican uh, House pretty much con called the shots. They controlled things. Uh, the The Democrats, certainly in the House, were on the sidelines for all intents and purposes, um, left only to get angry at the way the president was conducting the negotiations. Um, when all was said and done, um, it really came down to the Senate leadership to uh, pull the fat out of the fire uh, and help the president get the one thing he absolutely had to have, namely an increase in the debt ceiling. And that, by the way, to me, was um, what people didn't realize as the drama was unfolding, namely that the Republicans realized, and in particular Tea Party people realized, that the president absolutely had to have an increase in the debt ceiling. And understanding that, they knew that they could present him with an increase in the debt ceiling and then everything else they wanted. And he simply had to take it. Um, he had no leverage when all was said and done in this process because he, was, he had made clear that he was not going to let default occur 
Uh, and so as long as he was going to get an increase in the debt ceiling and avert default, uh, he was going to take anything else that the Republican House put in the package. And I think that that, um, again, in retrospect, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. I, I like that job. Um, so I'm happy to do it. Um, but as I look back on it, it, it seemed to me, and it, it seemed to me in the middle of the thing, that there was a point in time when the president should simply have insisted earlier in the process on a clean debt limit increase uh, and simply said, uh, we have to increase the debt. We can't possibly let the strongest, greatest country on earth default on its obligations and leave it at that and dare the Republican Party to load it up with Tea Party goodies uh, and in so doing bring about a default. Uh, but he couldn't stick to those guns. Jack, we said on some previous episodes of Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124 that uh, as we watched this debate unfold, we watched the White House and in some ways Speaker Boehner use every bullet uh, in their holster, uh, use every arrow in their quiver, beginning with the golf game and then segueing into East Room speeches. And they seem to use increasing... uh, moments of increasing magnitude to basically parry back and forth and I think as it got to the end game as you said they were really out of ammo and as it as it did unfold in from Sunday into Monday can you look back and think of uh, any individuals who really did acquit themselves well at the at the end of the process a lot of people said that Harry Reid a guy who doesn't doesn't present all that well on television, uh, but that he uh, he acquitted himself as a real grown-up in the process. I think Senator Reid did, and I, I I think that Senator McConnell proved to be, um, you know, <laughs> somebody who um, really got the blue ribbon for being pretty masterful um, in in legislative strategy. Um, he was the one who got to play the last card. And he got what he wanted, which was um, essentially to um, save Speaker Boehner uh, and um, and get an awful lot of the Republican agenda built into this um, legislation that that did pass. So now, for, go ahead, I'm Jeff. sorry, but, you know. And by the way, the drama is not over, of course. Right. I mean, the, the the way that this deal was constructed. Um, we're going to have this super committee um, that's charged with coming up with about half of the cuts that have to take place. What a lot of people don't realize is that um, although the committee has a very short fuse uh, in in terms of having to identify further cuts, uh, the fact of the matter is that the cuts it identifies will not begin to take place until the year 2013, and consequently, Congress has all of next year to tinker with whatever recommendations uh, are implemented by the committee, or in more likelihood, um, tinker with the automatic across-the-board cuts that will um, take place if the committee is stalemated. Now, I hope we're not confusing our listeners here. Basically, what's going to happen is the the legislation that was passed and signed by the president will cause certain 
cuts to take place now, beginning soon. Um, about half the cuts um, will be left to this joint committee of House and Senate members, equally divided between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and by around Thanksgiving, they have to identify those uh, cuts or revenue increases to help achieve um, uh, further deficit reduction. Um, the uh, House and the Senate are supposed to deal with those recommendations by uh, Christmas time. Uh, and if there is a stalemate, because the Joint Committee is divided six and six between the two parties, uh, then automatic cuts are triggered. Uh, and I think that the fairly great likelihood uh, is that these automatic cuts will, in fact, be triggered. Um, right, wait, hold on a second. You're telling me that the chance of a uh, congressional committee coming together and actually getting something done is unlikely, that they may not yet be able to come to a further agreement? I think that's... I'm being the, sarcastic because I think <laughs> everyone would agree with that at this point. Yeah. It's staggering that the brinksmanship that we continue to play in Washington um, barely is now enough to get a deal done, even with these even more draconian cuts that you're alluding to that will take place if they can't come up with an alternative way to make these cuts. But I want to turn the discussion, Jack, to... Can, can, may, may I interrupt briefly? No, please. Just, just to say, yeah. in the scheme of things... These sound like very big cuts. Well, we're talking about $1.5 trillion in the next round. Right, but when you look at the size, the depth of the hole we're in, they're not draconian. Uh, they actually deal with uh, a relatively small percentage of the deficits going out 10 years and the debt that we find ourselves in as a country. Well, when I refer to draconian, I, I'm, for example, taking uh, into consideration where the new Secretary of Defense, a uh, former colleague of yours, uh, now former CIA Director Leon Panetta, now head of uh, DOD, feels that you know if we're left to the automatic nature of the cuts to come, the, the, the Defense Department and our national security will be unduly uh, hurt by it, and so those would be sort of overbroad or, or draconian. It may be uh, too too big a word there, but I, I want to take a look at it in terms of the political. And, and by the way, he's probably right. He, yeah, uh, you know, there's it's a very serious issue trying to uh, take down the defense budget in a thoughtful way, and when it's done in an unthoughtful way. Um, especially in the middle of a drawdown in Afghanistan and having put already so much money into uh, defense acquisitions, many which are either over budget or not on time, uh, we could we could we could basically be throwing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars away if we stifle these programs uh, before they come to fruition. Right. And, and of course, the dilemma is that if we say, well, it, it's important and Lord knows it's important. The, the first duty of the president and the member members of Congress is to make sure uh, that this country's safe, well, let's that our talk, people are protected. Let's talk about the but, communications for a second, and I okay. want to stop you because Josh and I talk about this all the time, and I want to get your thoughts <clears throat> on the 2012 implications, um, and not just for the Republican candidates who seem, Josh, to have been uh, conspicuously absent or, or doing what they need to do and not getting involved in uh, in what was really going on in Washington, but for the President of the United States. And let me give you an example, Josh, and, and we'll see what uh, what 
what Jack thinks about this, but I, I feel that the uh, one of those campaign ads that may come out is the president, uh, even in his last gasp address to the nation, uh, drawing lines about uh, shared burden and uh, the principles that he espoused, almost none of which he, he got any... Uh, uh, you know, any great uh, success on, he's just laid himself out as a stark loser in this process, and he's drawn lines in the sand, and he's, he's just had them walked right over. Josh, did you see it that way uh, from a communications perspective? I feel like the president really went out of his way to illustrate uh, just how big a loser in this negotiation he was. Well, we said on previous episodes that we thought he sort of uh, used used every weapon that he had, uh, probably to excess. And as Jack said at the beginning of the show, uh, y- you saw that the ultimate outcome of this was left, uh, was controlled by a, a very small faction uh, on the Republican caucus. And how that plays out in 2012, I think it's, we're yet to, to find out. I think a lot will depend on the work of the super committee. I'm curious about Jack's view on what the role of a major Washington lobbying lobbying firm like QGA can can impact between now and December? Or, Jack, are you really sitting on the sidelines? What happens for you and the other uh, big Washington firms as this all plays out over the next three or four months? Well, there's going to be a, a lot of work to do. There um, an awful lot of people across this country whose interests uh, are greatly affected by the outcome of the discussions of the Joint Committee and by the deliberations that Congress will undertake uh, to try to further get um, their arms around um, what is admittedly a very serious problem the country faces in the form of the the debt that we are in uh, and the deficits that we are running um, by uh, all across um, this government. Um, but look, I think the, the starting point when we talk about the elections in, in 2012 are that, as has been said so many times, a week is a lifetime in politics, and and Lord knows 16 months is is truly an eternity. Um, There are a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then that will affect the outcome of the elections. Let's not forget that uh, in uh, the the 1992 election, when uh, Bill Clinton was elected, uh, 16 months before that, George Bush's approval was over 90 percent. Um, he had um, uh, undertaken to uh, uh, drive the Iraqis out of Kuwait. I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable how solidified the electorate was behind President Bush. Um, 16, 17 months later, he found himself uh, defeated uh, and headed for the ex- exits as Bill Clinton was coming into office. So a lot can change very quickly in politics. But um, I think right now, frankly, um, you know, the, the, the president, obviously, you, we can all read approval polls and, and know that his numbers um, have been losing elevation uh, over time. There's, there's no question about that. But we also have to remember that elections are choices. They're not referenda on single office holders. That's right. Uh, and and so w- what's going to matter in November of 2012 is the choice between two candidates, maybe three, by the way, um, that the American people are faced with. Um, if President Obama is you know running against somebody who can 
uh, present him or herself um, as a responsible um, person who is serious uh, and who can occupy the middle, who can attract independence, uh, then he might have a difficult time. But if he's running against somebody uh, who, you know, is towing the line of uh, Tea Party folks who seem to be uh, my way or the highway uh, in, in politics, uh, we might have a different kind of outcome. And and don't rule out the possibility um, of a third party Absolutely. candidacy. And, and that could come from anywhere. That, it would right. surprise me if, if the Republican Party um, chose a, a reasonable middle-of-the-road candidate for the Republican nomination. You well might see Michelle Bachman or someone like that run as a third party That's candidate. Right. Well, let's let's then turn back the clock because you brought up 1991 and 1992, and you remember the role that uh, Ross Perot played in that campaign. You remember the, the role that uh, your boss then, Al Gore, played in sort of uh, neutralizing him on the Larry King show. And as I remember uh, early 1993, uh, when the Clinton staff and the Gore staff were getting their uh, their staffs assembled in the White House. It always seemed to me as a guy who worked in the Clinton scheduling advance operation that the Gore operation under uh, a chief of staff named Jack Quinn really had its act together. I mean, they were a close-knit group, a much smaller group than the president's staff, but they seemed to work with one voice and one agenda. And then into the middle of the uh, of President Clinton's ter- term, he turns to that same Jack Quinn to be his his White White House counsel. I mean, following uh, Bernie Nussbaum, Lloyd Cutler, Abner Mikva, here comes Jack Quinn. And uh, what what was your feeling going from the sort of family of Al Gore into the maelstrom of the White House as a whole? Well, the first thing I would say about that transition was that. Um, I think that, um, and I appreciate your your kind words about um, our stewardship of the the vice president's office. Um, the 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 first thing I would say in that regard is that I think it was a successful period of time because we viewed ourselves, and I certainly viewed myself uh, as working for the president as well as the vice president. I thought that um, we had to be committed to uh, his politics, his policies. Uh, and his success, and we conducted ourselves that way. And so there was really remarkably little tension uh, between the offices of the the vice president and the president, and it worked well for that reason. Um, Now, the challenges in the two jobs were remarkably different. When I became White House counsel, I remember thinking, gosh, that vice presidential job was pretty easy (laughs) compared to this. and, and by the way, um, I don't mean to digress, but um, when we did have that debate with Ross Perot, uh, I found myself um, <laughs> uh, on, on the White House lawn being interviewed by CNN um, saying we were going to debate Ross Perot. And I walked back into my office, and my, as I walked in the door, my assistant said, Jack, Ross Perot's on the phone. And we had one of the more remarkable conversations I've ever, ever had in my life. The culmination us, of, please. The culmination of, you want the whole story? Well, yeah. I mean... Jack, can I finish? Can I finish? <laughs> he, he, um, he, at the time, was insisting um, that we debate him 
at one of his rallies with 9,000 people in Tampa. <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know, uh, Mr. Pro, that's not going to happen. And uh, he went on and on. And I mean, this conversation extended over a very long period of time. And, uh, you know, he's like, why? Why won't, why, why won't he debate me in front of my crowd, my people? And I said, well, because it's your crowd, it's your people. And <laughs> we don't think it's a terribly good idea. And he said, I want to debate both of them. I'll debate both of them three times. And I said, you know, sir, I really think you're elevating your importance in this whole matter. Um, that really irritated him. And uh, eventually he, he kind of gave up on me. He said, I want to speak to the vice president. I said, well, I, you know, I might be able to arrange that. Uh, he said, because you're a young whippersnapper. And I said, <laughs> well, again, I'll, I'll try to arrange that. And I said, but I got to tell you, he's only uh, 18 months older than I am. <laughs> it, it was not a good time. And I actually talked to the president, the vice president, minutes after having that conversation. And um, one of the things that struck me, as I told them at the time, was I said, you know, you're, you're the president of the United States, pointing to President Clinton, and you're the vice president of the United States, pointing to Vice President Gore. And I said, people say no to you all the time. You hear no from people on Capitol Hill. You hear no from constituency groups. I said, if you're a billionaire, no one ever says no to you. <laughs> it's just a very different... His reality is a little different in the presence. His reality is very different. As you think back on that time, though, uh, Jack, you know, the, uh, the the problems that faced President Clinton, uh, you know, similar in a lot of ways to, to what other presidents have faced, but the communications uh, arena and the, and the sort of not just the 24-hour communication cycle that's now getting compressed. We might even have 24 news cycles in a 24-hour day. Uh, but the, the digital and social and, and just all of the, the different channels that are out there, um, it is so much more important to be on top of the communications. And you talk about a lot can change even in a week in politics, but there are going to be high points along the way, uh, at least the, the, the points that people will remember, the points that they woke up and took notice. Um, how does a president, even as a counsel to a president, keep track of this ever-changing news cycle? Do you have a sense that, that the folks who are out there today at the White House are doing a good job in keeping up? Uh, they constantly say they're pivoting back to jobs, but uh, you know, if they pivot that much, they might have just turned around in a circle, it's been suggested. Uh, how, how do you keep uh, something like the White House going, and do you think they're doing a good job juggling all of this from a communications perspective right now? Well, I, I think they're certainly trying very hard to keep, to keep on top of it, but you put your finger on it at the outset. I mean, the, the communications world in which we live today is radically different from the communications world of, of the 90s and, and before. Um, I mean, among other things, it, if, if you wanted to get your message out um, in the years in, in, in which Bill Clinton and, and uh, George H.W. Bush and uh, Jimmy Carter and so on were president, you know, y you made sure that um, you from time to time got the um, the news anchors in your office and, and uh, sat them down and talked through the issues you were grappling with. I, I distinctly, I'm sure Josh remembers, I mean, yeah. this is the sort of thing you did, you know, you you got the anchors in there and you, you, you talked them through the, the politics and the policies. Today, the the so-called traditional media or old media is actually being driven by the new media. 
um, the the nature of the the debate, the tone of the debate, as well as the content of the debate, is being driven in very significant part by what's going on out there in in the ether, uh, in the That's digital right. world. Josh makes yeah. this point uh, quite often. Yeah, I mean, hopes were raised, I think, during the Obama transition when uh, I think uh, maybe Bill Kristol organized a dinner for people like Charles Krauthammer and other conservative and uh, David Brooks and other sort of moderate conservative thinkers with President Obama. And you, you came out of that with people like uh, Brooks and uh, and Kristol uh, saying, let's give this new president the benefit of the doubt. And you thought, well, we really could be on the verge of a of a good bipartisan era here. Frankly, Jack, I mean, when you left the White House and formed your firm with Ed Gillespie, one of the first bipartisan firms, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if you, if you think that communication and relationships between conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, is different outside of the White House and Congress in Washington than it is in. I mean, you made your whole career post the White House based on a, a firm that had. Democrats and Republicans in equal measure. It, well, that's exactly right, and I still think it's the right approach because it, it's critical. It's, it's more important than ever, I believe, um, to have uh, what I like to think of as a 360-degree perspective on what's going on. Uh, you know, I, I don't talk to folks in the Tea Party caucus frequently. Um, I don't know that I've ever spoken to one of the members of Congress who's in the Tea Party. Um, but my colleagues do, um, and they understand them. They understand the way they think. Um, they understand um, the, the the strategies they they are developing and the tactics they pursue. Uh, I hope I have a similar kind of understanding on the Democratic side. We live in a country, the government of which is and has been for a long time, truly divided. Power is dispersed. Even when we have had um, the White House, the Senate, and the House controlled by one party, the minority party has mattered, um, particularly in the Senate, for example, um, where it has rarely been the case um, that the party in control has been able to get 60 votes to end debate. Um, and so uh, even in that circumstance, let alone one in which um, one house of the Congress and, and the White House are of a different party, it's critically important that you understand both sides of the aisle. And um, that's, the, that's, the, that's how this sausage factory works. Um, it works because everybody's vote counts. I, I'm older. I saw I, you write about that in your and, blog. Um, and I, I, I remember the days when uh, you really could get things done with a very small handful of people when the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee really ruled the roost on what tax policy was going to be. It hasn't been that way in a long time. Power is diffuse. Literally every single member of co Congress counts. Uh, and, and in an environment like that, um, it's critically important to have an understanding uh, how things are going to work on, on both sides of the aisle. 
You are listening to Polyoptics, and we are speaking with Jack Quinn, uh, chairman of QGA Public Affairs, uh, former counsel to President Bill Clinton, former chief of staff to Vice President Al Gore, and uh, a good friend to both Josh and I. Uh, you know, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, Jack, when you said the president got the one thing that he absolutely needed. Okay, I'll give you that he absolutely needed the uh, the, the debt ceiling increase, but he also got, if there was a close second, in my opinion, which was he got it for long enough that he didn't have to deal with this again before the election of 2012. He could not afford a short-term solution. You know, it's in Washington they say, do you want a bill or do you want an issue? This was an issue for the Republicans. This is something that was uh, roiling and gave way to waking people up and great sound bites and, you know, potential. We'll see how it shakes out. Downside for both uh, uh, parties, but the president is the president, and he could not afford to have to go and spend the kind of time and political capital it would have taken to relitigate this in November, now just a year from the re-election. I mean, quite literally, I look at the board here in the studio at SiriusXM, POTUS, we've got 459 days left until the election of 2012. Uh, the president really needs to get some more in his legislative agenda done. And this is going to come down to how he can get out there and communicate with the American people and bring leverage on Congress. This, to me, is a communications challenge for the president if he's to be reelected, not just a policy one, Jack. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that that was, in the president's mind, a terribly important thing to to make sure that we didn't have to have multiple um, votes to increase the, the debt limit. Having said that, um, it's easy to overstate it. Um, and what I mean by that is that I think that we are still going to have a series uh, and, and a prolonged uh, discussion of spending, deficits, debt, and taxes between now and 2012. Is that the only thing Congress and the White House will be doing? No, of course not. There will be great focus on jobs, ongoing focus on jobs. Um, but believe me, uh, spending and taxes <laughs> will be numbers one and two uh, on, on the discussion list uh, over the next 16 months. Um, I certainly don't think that the Republican Party wants to give up those topics. They think they're winning issues for them. Uh, and again... Um, Do you think they're winning issues for them, Jack? Well, let me come back to that in a minute, because I, I want everyone to understand that the legislation that the president signed when we got this increase in the debt limit has set in motion a process um, that invites congressional tinkering with whatever spending cuts take place at the end of 2012, I'm sorry, at the end of, of 2011, um, for all of 2012. And so I anticipate that, again, my guess would be that these automatic triggers are pulled at the end of this year, but that then Congress will turn to revising 
the cuts that have been set in But motion. Josh said, and Josh, you've got to jump in here. He asked this question. It just reminded me when you said that, Jack. Josh asked the question, for firms like the one that you lead, and I'm lucky to be a part of, although not, not on, on, on so much the work that, that you do, uh, the question is, can you really and should you really be trying to affect an outcome that may just be a fait accompli? Should we? Well, I mean, people are going to be out there lobbying this uh, this this super joint committee, and to what end? If no good uh, compromise can be found, Josh, uh, you know, we we may be just left with having done nothing and gotten the same result. Well, look, um, there's certainly going to be people who want to draw to the attention of policymakers and of the American people the consequences of some some of these automatic cuts whether your interest is in uh, Medicare because you're older and a recipient a beneficiary in Social Security um, in in the energy area um, and the the creation of clean energy technologies and the spending um, that that truly ought to be done in that area um, which would among other things create jobs um, or um, you know this as I say this paramount obligation that the president and every single member of the Congress has to make sure that our defenses are adequate um, we need to fully understand the implications of automatic cuts there right Jack uh, the work over the next three or four months is it, both for members of Congress, people in the administration, and for the the population of Washington that that weighs in on this, media and lobbyists is going to be huge. And just maybe take flying up to thirty thousand feet and reflecting on on the business uh, that you created and your and and the the world of lobbying in Washington. I wonder if you'd just reflect on where. As we wrap up, uh, your your business is headed. I mean, in the old days uh, that you talked about, and you've written about this in your blog, if you took the chairman of the House Ways and Means to Morton's, uh, you might actually get a lot done. Uh, today, and it, compa- it compares to me to the way Michael Lewis wrote about old-time baseball scouting and Moneyball versus cybermetrics and uh, and what uh, data would tell you. So, uh, h- how is what you're doing in, in old-fashioned lobbying at QGA compared to some of the sort of more uh, boutique services that Politico and others are doing to to sell their analysis to to hedge funds and where where in the future is going to be divining where Congress is heading sort of the the old time baseball scouting or the new cybermetrics of lobbying. Well, I would answer it this way: I think you will always have so called shoe leather lobbying, people getting in a taxi cab, going up to Capitol Hill, walking the halls, and pressing their case. Um, But to be sure on the big and important issues, uh, that's not enough. That is insufficient. And over time, there has already been and there will continue to be increased emphasis on what I call indirect advocacy, uh, enlisting uh, the support of the masses of people who are plugged into the Internet, um, making sure that you really have... Uh, a campaign mentality 
when you're trying to get something done. Again, whether it's AARP on Medicare and Social Security um, or the defense industry and others concerned about the, the adequacy and, and strength and vibrancy of our uh, national defense. Whatever the issue, it is critically important that you your efforts uh, in, in the form of direct lobbying be reinforced uh, by what again what I, what I refer to as indirect advocacy in terms of uh, digital media um, you know what we could call old-fashioned advertising uh, print and television and so on uh, you need to look at what the policymakers are looking at and they're not simply listening to people who walk into their office. That's right. Uh, they they get it. They, they're plugged into the Internet. They know what's going on out there. Um, Just ask Anthony, like Anthony Wiener. Wiener. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet about it, Jack. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that you had a chance to come in and talk to us. Uh, you know, Josh, uh, we've been talking about uh, broadening our conversation on polyoptics and bringing in someone like Jack Quinn, who's served uh, U.S. senators, been part of the, the Democratic National Committee. He's served on the staff of select committees on the Hill, and, and as we've talked about throughout this this conversation, served at the highest levels of government uh, in the White House uh, and served uh, you know with people like yourself. Uh, I, I, I would guess that you're as, uh, as interested in wanting to go on if we had more time with Jack as I am. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about what what Jack did, forming his firm with Ed Gillespie, uh, what people like Ken Duberstein, uh, who worked for Ronald Reagan, and Mike Berman, who worked for Walter Mondale, did coming together, you have to think, Adam, and I guess we'll leave it to Jack for the last word, that if more people in Washington could see how they could get work done working together, even if they come from different political stripes, if Congress would just look at that lesson, uh, there could be a whole lot more done in Capitol Hill. Well, I wish we would. You know, this, this country has a phenomenal history, uh, I believe, of people in public service uh, reaching a, the hand of friendship across the aisle and working together. Uh, you know, I think of you know Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, even. Um, uh, in 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 times past, there were just so many occasions on which people were willing to to work together. But look, I really appreciate being here. You're kind to have me. I'd be delighted to come back anytime. Um, I, I will close by saying that my kids constantly remind me that every title I have starts with former. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> not, Jack. Not everyone. Thanks a lot, Jack Quinn. This is POTUS. We're joined now by the CBS News congressional correspondent, a longtime friend of mine, and I'm proud to have her on this show, Nancy Cordes. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much, Adam and Josh, for having me. Now, we're catching up with you today in New York City, but your normal purchase here in Washington, D.C., and you have been following the bouncing ball through uh, so many weeks on the debt ceiling debate. Did it feel like a huge letdown the way this thing finished? Why do you think I went running, screaming out of town? <laughs> tell me, uh, um, <laughs> what was it like for you over the last week? And tell us, what were the highlights and the lowlights? Uh, I, I can't think of too many highlights. Uh, it was definitely sort of a grim time on Capitol Hill, I think, um, 
both uh, longtime members of the Capitol Hill Press Corps and lawmakers and even the Senate and House chaplains who I, I interviewed this week all said uh, that it was a you know it was a low point in our discourse that uh, you know this uh, the compromise in the end, uh, you know, didn't have anyone um, cheering for the most part, um, although Republicans certainly uh, were much happier with the deal than Democrats were. I, I think we saw a lot more long faces on the Democrats after this than the Republicans I hope had. The, I hope the House and Senate chaplains were praying for a better outcome than we got. Oh, my gosh. These guys, I mean, what, the reason that we interviewed them is that um, I was... Uh, we were listening to the Senate chaplain who opens every uh, every day with a prayer, uh, and he was really coming down hard on these guys and, you know, saying, you know, things like, oh, Lord, help them to avert a potential global catastrophe. Please open their eyes and, you know, let them see the error of their ways. So he was really not mincing words. It uh, made it very clear how, how disappointed he was that they were letting this go to the last minute. When you're a network correspondent uh, responsible for covering Capitol Hill, uh, you, your history is so important important. Uh, mm -hmm. Being able to go back and research and see what people had said in certain situations in the past. Did you have a sense in all the interviews that you did and the communications uh, and tactics that you appreciated that people got the idea that what they said now was going to come back to haunt them soon, Nancy? You mean in, in terms of in terms of you know their discourse and their well, level of respect for one another? That plus some of the, the the policy. You know what what I said we 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 needed to do and was important today uh, is something that was going to come back and, and I'm going to I'm going to hear it played back to me and you can't take a separate or different position uh, in the future and try and get away with it. Well, I think that you know both sides were aware that there was sort of a new playing ground that was being set up in that you know the debt ceiling has never been uh, a political football before uh, and and that now you know th now that you've sort of t brought, taken the genie out of the bottle it's very difficult to put it back in so i think both sides are extremely aware that um, you know for better or for worse depending on your point of view you know we may now be in a situation where uh, every time the debt ceiling needs to be raised you know you sort of send sh shockwaves around the world about you know how far are we going to push it will our politicians actually uh, would they actually allow the debt ceiling to um, to be punctured, if you will? And uh, I think that that is something that um, that that some, uh, particularly on the right, are very comfortable with uh, and didn't seem to see a problem with. And that some, and the, but it's also something that others, uh, you know, more moderate Republicans and many Democrats were very uncomfortable with. Nancy, when you uh, left ABC News and, and joined CBS, uh, and among your duties was going to be covering Capitol Hill, I wonder if you had any idea that you would be confined for such a long period of time with such a, a story with so stultingly little uh, visual elements to it that you had to try and create a narrative for, when the only thing that your uh, videographers and, uh, and editors back in the booth had was the comings and goings of uh, Harry Reid and 
and uh, Mitch McConnell through the halls of Congress and maybe some video coming over for the Yeah, White this House. was a white man in suit story. Uh, right, right. Uh, how, how did you manage to give this story some color and report this to the people? It does force you to get creative um, about about video. And, and, you know, I think when, it, when it's a story like this, you rely very heavily on graphics to tell your story, you know, when you're laying out what's what's in the plan, what has changed in the plan, what do Democrats want, what do Republicans want. You use a lot of graphics in the piece uh, to liven things up. And I think uh, what's also very important is not just to use, you know, a, a, a ton of uh, press conference sound bites strung together, which can get a little monotonous, but to try and do your own interviews, you know, to 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 interact with as many lawmakers as possible to give the story some life. Did it make you pine for the days of <laughs> of covering things like Hurricane Katrina or Bosnia or the DC sniper attacks? I mean, the, or working those, working at Good Morning America with Adam Belmar? Uh, well, that was a highlight, no question, Adam. And I will I will always hold that near and dear to my heart. <laughs> um, but you know, I didn't pine away because I felt you know, despite the long days and and, and everything, I mean, it felt like this was such an important story, and it was so it was so critical to cover. And I felt like it was a real honor to be sort of tasked with explaining to the American people which, something that could be a very dense, uh, difficult to understand uh, story. And so that was a real challenge. And what was also very invigorating was that CBS, from the very beginning, um, made this story such a priority and said, hey, look, we know that this is not visually the most compelling story around, but it's just so damn important. We're going to do it every day. And so, you know, I had the, the, um, the strength of knowing, you know, I'm doing a lot of hard work here, but it's not going to go to waste. It's going to end up on the evening news every single night. It'll end up on the early show the next day, and that really kept us going. Well, it's it's not just there. As I had uh, said to you uh, in an email earlier this week when I was I was asking you to come and join us, Nancy, uh, you know, it's very rare that you have uh, a correspondent of your caliber not only doing all of these shows and being tasked with frontline reporting, but your reports were leading network newscasts on CBS radio night after night being rerun in the morning, you really seem to hit your stride in, in sort of making this intelligible to people. Uh, and I want to thank you for that because okay. I was getting a lot of my news here in Washington off WTOP radio and listening wow. to your reports. I wanted to ask you, though, you did do on so many of your own interviews and didn't rest on uh, the sort of stakeout sound that uh, we had all seen regurgitated on the cable news broadcast. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the background when you were talking or setting up, did you get a sense from a lot of the folks, even the leadership, that this was as much about 2012 politics as it was about policy? Absolutely, because I, I think particularly um, for Republicans, um, I think that one of the reasons that you saw them pull away from the grand bargain with the president, um, particularly Speaker Boehner, is I think you can't divorce 2012 politics from it knowing, okay, well, if I do this grand deal with the president, that's going to be a huge win in his column in 2012. He's going to be able to, t- you know, to claim that and, you know, sort of the classic Clinton triangulation uh, appealing to independence. I, you know, I cut the the deficit, but I also, you know, increased taxes, uh, tax revenue as part of the deal. And I think that they saw that that was going to end up being a huge victory for the president. And 
in the end, you know, they pulled away. They passed their own bill. Uh, they had a much uh, stronger negotiating position after they did that. And, you know, the president ended up looking like, you know, he got dragged along with, you know, with both feet. Nancy, uh, as you, I, I hope, get ready to take a little time off after this uh, oh, yeah. uh, marathon story. <laughs> can, can you bring us back uh, 10 years to a much earlier point in your career? You're at WJLA, still in Washington, D.C., but you're, you know, you're working at, at the local affiliate and, yeah. uh, and planes crash into the Pentagon on September 11th. Yeah. What was your uh, assignment and what did you do? Uh, I was at the Pentagon uh, for about two weeks straight after um, after that happened. Uh, I was a morning show correspondent at that time, so I would usually come in at around uh, 3 or 3.30 in the morning and write my story and head uh, over to, to the Pentagon and do multiple live shots between around 5 and 9 a.m. And, uh, you know, what was really interesting about that time is, you know, when you're covering any major story, you know, you're just sort of nose to the grindstone and you're living it and in and this one was particularly terrible to live through but when i went back later and watched all my stories what struck me was how sad i looked when i was doing them and you know when when you're doing the story you think you're just like passing along the information and you know you're you know you're giving people the news that they need to to know and but then when i watched back when i went back and looked at it i i looked so so down as everybody was and i i hadn't realized that that was coming through in my reporting so that was interesting those days were dark days, and yep. I was uh, down there at the Pentagon as well, uh, uh, having you know been tasked with with being out in the field for GMA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, Josh, and I have started to think about and talk about this ten year anniversary that's coming up. Um, there are many things in the political communications realm that people will scrutinize where the president is, how much he talks about himself mm-hmm. um, versus the country and how he puts into context uh, where we are both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Um, but I, I do think that the the personal stories and the remembrance of those people who lost on this 10-year anniversary uh, are going to be compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are you all planning? What, what are you thinking about as we hit that 10-year anniversary over there at CBS? Um, well, I haven't been very involved in, in the planning, to be honest with you, because I have been so immersed in, uh, in, in covering Capitol Hill. I do know that they're you know that they're certainly planning, um, uh, you know, planning a lot of stories and remembrances, and and will treat it with you know the re- the dignity that it deserves. Um, but uh, but to be honest with you, I, I'm not I'm not privy to the details just because you know we've been eating and breathing and sleeping the debt crisis. One transition that has been happening uh, while you've been covering the story is the uh, the changeover at CBS Evening News from Katie Couric to Scott Pelley. Yes. The change in executive producer from Rick Kaplan to Patricia Shevlin. Mm-hmm. How have things changed a little bit in in how you're going about your business and 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 the the tone and feel of of your role within the broadcast? Well, I mean, I love Katie Couric and Rick Kaplan, and they were both so so good to me, and I worked with Rick at ABC as well. So. So I always will have a, you know, a really um, important place in my heart for Rick. And but I'm, I've also worked with Pat um, for years, and Scott is just amazing, and he is completely dedicated to hard news and um, you know, sort of that traditional formula of the evening news program where you have you know all hard news in the first block, and then you know as you get to the second block or the third block in the show or the fourth block, it kind of gets softer. Um, he is not 
uh, interested in doing stories that are not either incredibly important, hard news, timely, uh, national, international, or, I mean, he's not against a human interest story, but it really has to be incredibly, incredibly compelling. And so what's nice for someone like me who covers Capitol Hill is that uh, that just sort of opens up a window for me. You know, I don't... I. I, you know, it's not just if I don't get in in the first few minutes, I'm not getting in that night. I might make it into the second block or into the people, third block. People who are listening here on POTUS may have some idea, <laughs> but no one could ever know how hard it is to fight to get onto the show every night. Yes. And you've been doing such a great job of it. And you guys, especially with Scott in the chair, are differentiating yep. yourself from, uh, from, from Diane and from Brian in a really positive way. I want to thank you for taking time to join us on Polyoptics, Nancy Cordes. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, guys. Josh, uh, for an incredible week in Washington, I loved hearing the insights from Nancy Cordes and the bipartisanship uh, that Jack Quinn espouses and has really lived. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. You almost heard both Quinn and Cordes exhaling after this process. That they that, exactly right. that anyone who's been watching this is just so done and ready to to get some fresh air and get to the beach, whether they're outside the Beltway somewhere on on Long Island or or anywhere that people are listening to us on Sirius XM. People are just. You were a little bit disappointed that Congress broke for recess and won't be back until September, but really, that's what the dog days of August are for. They got some work done, and uh, and now it's time to go home and recharge. Polyoptics, we say it's a mashup of politics and optics, and it's hard not to think that the American people are ready to close their eyes and clear their head just a little bit of everything that's transpired, uh, uh, perhaps a metaphorical... Um, cleansing palette uh, initiative here is needed. Uh, I think that polyoptics will continue on, but Josh, I'm glad to put this one behind us. I am too, Adam. You know, uh, we, we watched uh, this week, uh, Harry Smith did his first piece for Brian Williams on the NBC Nightly News. He looked, He talked about Barack Obama turning 50 and getting his AARP card the next day, and Harry said something like, for once, uh, this very young president actually looked his age after this week. Well said. Thanks for joining us this week on Polyoptics, Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS, politics of the United States, for the people of the United States, Sirius XM 124.